Clock time and modern technology foster in us the belief that we can and should be doing something every moment. So now we live with the consequences of this intensification, where clock time linked with money and expected increased production has this paradox where you can feel it. Think about it. It's so cool. For the longest time, we thought it'd be really cool to make machines like humans. That'd be awesome. And the paradox is, and you feel it in your soul right now, in your gut, the paradox is now we are trying to make humans like machines. Hello and welcome to What Would Jesus Tech? My name is Andrew Noble. I am with Joel Jacob, and we are also kind of sort of with someone named Kelly Capic. Um, I was with him in person. I picked him up from the airport. He came to a conference that Joel and I were at, but Joel only came to part of it. Joel, you, you, why didn't you come to the Friday? You were busy or something? You didn't have time for it? <laughs> yeah. It's an hour drive. I have family obligations. You know, <laughs> 100%, man, 100%. So Joel and I, we led a session on Saturday, but Kelly Capic, he ran a session um, Friday night. And that's what we're going to listen to now, this session session that Joel hasn't heard. And yes, it's a recording, but you haven't heard it before. And this is some stuff that Kelly and I actually worked through. I actually asked him if he could like go into this, because I think there is a connection between how we view time and our anxiety, our stress our feeling of being overwhelmed. And so Kelly Capic, he's going to get into that. We're going to listen a bunch, but then Joel and I will interact with it and interrupt here and there. So if you want to listen to the session itself, you can just listen to it. The link's in the description. I will say one more thing before we get started, just as by way of intro. If you are listening to this on YouTube, thank you for listening on YouTube. Hit the subscribe button. All right, with that, I'm going to kick it over to Kelly Capic. That's cool with you, Joel. Yeah, I'm actually really excited. Like you mentioned, this is going to be my first time hearing it. So uh, I'm ready to be fed. All right. All right. This is good. Actually, what we're going to do, and I think hopefully uh, you can receive it this way, we're going to lay some groundwork. In some ways, what I want to do in this session is help you understand culturally, historically, some of why you feel in your gut what you feel. And what's going to be weird is that means we're going to talk about clocks. Joel, do you have a good theology of the clock at this point? How do you view <laughs> the clock? Are you neutral? I, I'm a, I'll be honest. I don't even know if it was a Roman invention, who invented it. So hopefully that comes up too. So in some ways, I, the, the opening question is really, how are you doing? <laughs> You know, how, how are you doing? You know, we ask one another those kind of questions. How are you doing? And, you know, the normal answer is I'm, I'm fine. But, but some of the other answers that I'm sure you're very familiar with are things like, well, I'm actually pretty stressed. I'm very busy. I'm just so busy. I'm worn out. Listen to some of the words that we subtly choose we describe, our, we describe ourselves sometimes as we describe ourselves as buried, overwhelmed, crushed, stretched. Think about those words: buried, crushed, overwhelmed, stretched. That actually describes something being done to us, right? That language. So what, what is going on? And I want us to start by talking about the tyranny of time. Why do we feel so busy, so stressed out, and so anxious? 
And in order to better understand that, as I kind of hinted at, we need to start by talking about clocks and measuring time. Some of you know the name St. Augustine, one of the most important early church fathers, and he, he once said, what, what is time? I know what it is as long as you don't ask me. Isn't that a great answer? I know what time is as long as you don't actually ask me. Right? We look at our watch and we tell a person what time it is. But what have you actually done when you've done that? Because whether or not you realize it, people have not always viewed time in the same way. In a sense, telling time is not a new thing. There's always been, there have always been people who are looking to the, to the stars, right? To the moon, to the, to the sun. For millennia, people have employed different techniques to try and, quote, measure time. But they still had distinctive ways of organizing time. For example, ancient Israel counted a day from morning to morning, right? We tend to think of midnight or 12 o'clock to 12, but a day started in the morning, went to the next morning. But they then subdivided the day. Now listen to these descriptions to how they describe a day. There were the times of morning and midday, dawn, the setting of the sun, the breeze before the sunrise, the evening breeze, and the hottest time of the day. That's how you describe time. In other words, don't miss it. Embodiment in this material, physical world molded our relationship to time. What people saw, what they experienced, what they felt governed their movement through the day. So I really like this idea of embodied time. I tried the other week I was away for three days by myself and I tried to not look at a clock because I was trying to practice like what it would be like to not look at a clock but then it turns out that I wanted to listen to an audiobook and so I couldn't help but look at the clock but I did find myself uh, and maybe you've experienced this you're like hungry but you don't know if you should be hungry Mm. you know what I mean or and you're waiting for a clock to tell you objectively how hungry you are rather than letting your body do it. I think like even getting into the, I was just going to say getting into the flow state is, is that like one moment I can remember feeling like you lose track of time, right? When you're having a lot of fun, when you're really engaged in something, you get into um, what Mahalai calls getting into a flow state. Yeah, and he is actually going to talk about that a little bit later. So, okay, good cool. setup. And and scholars call this it's what we call a contextual view of time. Contextual. What that what we mean by contextual is it is the context, the material world around you, the context, not just material, but your setting that governs your experience of time. So some days are actually longer than others. Someday, you know this, right? You've heard, have you ever thought about that? We say, oh, that's a long day. But there's a reason, right? Some of you have been to Alaska. I remember being there for something. It was 1130 at night and I had to pull the curtains that were pitch black. I'd never seen curtains like that. It was like, there's no other chance to sleep, right? There's literally longer days and there are shorter days. 
There are periods for harvest and festivals and feasts. Maybe this sounds too abstract for you. If there are no bosses around, I can. Are there not hours that are better for napping than for working? Right? Different cultures recognize that. Not, not so much in the Western world, right? But, but the reality is childbirth, for example, brings a period of expectations that should differ from times of war. Time necessarily related to your physical environment, but also community dynamics. So throughout history, people developed technologies to measure the time. You had the water clock, you had different kinds of things, but primarily your experience of time was shaped by events and one's environment. Keep that in mind. Don't worry, I won't go on for an hour on this, but we got a little bit more to do. So if you jump to the 13th century, by then only the largest cities in the West start to have um, this development of clocks in the same kind of way we think of them, um, mechanical clocks. But as, as some scholars have written, for, most, for the majority of people in the Western world, well, beyond just the West, hours and minutes, just imagine this, were irrelevant. Now, I know it's hard to believe, but actually we have all kinds of evidence. Like if you said, you know, how long will something take? They would say something like, well, it'd take you the time it takes time to say three paternosters. In other words, they're measuring time by how long it takes you to say our father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, right? They're, it's the time it takes for a horse to walk, da, 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 right? And then what happens though, is notice this, it's not so much the sight of, of time, but it's the sound of time that starts to become important. So that what happens around that time period is monasteries and then parish churches start to have a bell that would ring. And that bell would ring at certain times of the day to tell you normally when to pray or when to gather for a worship service. Think of it and depending on your church background, but the, the church celebrated a year that would walk through the Christian story. We just celebrated Easter, right? But there would be Advent and Christmas and Epiphany and Lent and Easter and ordinary time, ordinary time being the longest. The point was that there was a rhythm to the calendar. And it's within the confines of Christian monasteries that significant developments start to take place. So there's kind of the uh, the tech enthusiast in you. You might be excited that Christian monasteries are like leading this technological <laughs> development. But it is interesting that like, hey, we want everybody to come to church. Let's ring the bells, hear the sound. Like Capic's talking about this move from sight, observing the, where the sun is, or even feeling how hot the day is, to this sensation of sound bringing us to together. It wasn't individualized. It was communal. Um, and it wasn't, again, you know, um, I, I can't avoid but using like Charles Taylor's language here, but like it, it was, it went from enchanted time and the clock and the chimes. It brought forth something of God, something transcendent out of this world was speaking into it with time. Um, but 
now, if we jump ahead and Capic will get there, you just think of how much time is disenchanted. Time is completely apart from the things of God. We're, we're scratching the surface here, so I'm excited to hear. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm waiting to, I'm, I'm processing, like the audience I'm sure is as well. Okay, we'll keep going, we'll keep going. For our purposes, all I want you to know right now is that clocks were there meant to foster worship. They, clocks were there meant to foster worship. They would call people together for prayer for, to govern this liturgy. But it was, it was the liturgy, it was the worship that drove the whole thing, not the clock. The clock was meant to serve the liturgy not the other way around. Now, it doesn't take long for clocks to eventually leave the monasteries and enter into town squares, and as they spread and become more common, they start to change the human experience, and eventually, all of a sudden, they have hour hands, and they have minute hands, and eventually have second hands, and you start to have watches on people's bodies. It's very interesting. Some of you might know the name Timothy George. He's one of the great um, Baptist church historians and theologians in the last hundred years. And, uh, and for whatever reason, he, he said, uh, I don't want time on my body. This is just a free, quirky story. He's like, I, I don't want any time on my body, so he will never wear a watch. But what's hilarious about George is he has like the best watch collection you'll ever find. Because he'll go and he'll come to a place like this and he's like, oh, I'm going to speak. I need to go up and preach. So he'll say, Andrew, can I borrow your watch? <laughs> and he'll borrow the watch and then takes it home. And he doesn't wear them. So he's just got this amazing collection of watches. So that's, that's for free. So in 1944, George Woodcock wrote this very famous essay called, think about this, 1944. He wrote, he wrote an essay called The Tyranny of the Clock. And in 1944, he actually argued and widely agreed with that the conception of clock time in the Western world, and he was coming out of Europe, in the Western world is what distinguished modern society more than anything else from all earlier societies. Can you imagine that? It's actually our conception of clock time that more than anything else we, I probably wouldn't make most of our list. More than anything else distinguishes us from earlier societies. So you're taking in that claim. Like, this has now become our most important podcast. If we're going to talk about, like, the biggest technologies ever, the most important, most influential, perhaps the clock is the most important technology ever in terms of how much it has changed things. And I'm curious, because I think you're a unique participant in this, because like, I know you, Joel, you're okay with showing up late to things. So we'll get to that. <laughs> so we'll get to that. But like, I, anyways, are you, you want to say anything yeah. now or should we just keep going? Yeah, we can keep going. I think it's interesting. He notes that like the quote was coming out of um, the culture of time in Britain, which is, you know, they, spread trains around the world that were famous for like, you know, being strict on time. So maybe I'll refer back to that later. Yeah. So that today you and I don't even think about it. When someone says, what time 
is it, or what time does the conference begin? We say, seven o'clock. Which, I don't know if you realize that, but what you're actually saying is shorthand for the time of the clock is seven. You tracking with me? You're like, yeah, but I don't understand what that has to do with anything. Well, stay with me. You don't just have to go to the history of the West to see how important this is. You can go elsewhere. For, exa- for example, Nwaka Egbilum uh, has written this um, for an Oxford University Press volume on Africa for business leaders and others who are going to Africa. And Africa is a big continent with all kinds of countries. We don't want to pretend that all the countries are the same culturally. Otherwise, that's not true. But he comes up with eight principles that even with all of the cultural differences among all of those countries, he's like, here are some things you sh- should know. And one of those is of great relevance for us here. And basically, he argues that ritual time rather than clock time, often governs their experience. In this way, so often it's actually more reminiscent of ancient Israel than New York City. And the idea is that events, rather than timepieces, still often regulate an African account of time. So, so he writes, there's a gathering for a dance, and the dance goes on as long as it's good. And if it's really good, you just keep going. And if it's not so good, you just go. You go home. You go do something else. A meeting gathers and lasts until it's no longer interesting, needed. Event, ritual, rather than the clock. Now, I think this is, fa- and, and one of the things he, he argues is that time, quote, in essence is life celebrated or life lived. Now, can we be honest? I know I'm coming from America. You're still North America. I know there are cultural differences. But let's be honest. So often when we hear that kind of stuff as, as North Americans, we're like, lazy, We hear these kind of stories about these different approaches to time and what swells up in our hearts and souls is how inefficient, right? That doesn't seem good. It's inefficient. And we call it inefficient as if it's a moral failing, even as we in our own approach can feel how our view is often undermining relationships and rest and health. All right, so you're tracking with what he's getting to here? Like, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I have I have views on this. Obviously, I think okay, so um just to set some context here. Uh I am an immigrant to Canada. My parents came from South India. And you know, growing up I had this theory when I started to realize the difference in perception of time from people in our community and people in the Western world. Obviously, I'm growing up in the West, um, so there definitely is more pull to adopt the cultural norms of of these countries than the ones that are culturally being brought over. But typically in like Africa, um, Caribbean, I would say 
uh, at least Southern India. I'm not sure about Northern India. There's, you know, Caribbean Standard Time, Indian Standard Time, which is a colloquial phrase to say that, you know, we're, we're late to things. And part of that rationale, I would say, is like, well, why, why did we care less about, you know, being strict on time? And part of it, I would say, is like, yeah, when you had to eat, traditionally, because these are tropical climates, you'd go and you take fruit off a tree. You know, f- food was around. You didn't have to have the vigor of saying, okay, winter is coming. We have to prepare. We have to do all these things. It was a little bit more, I would say, forgiving. And I think that just led to a culture that was a little bit more go with the flow, um, which definitely has, you know, trade-offs into efficiency and productivity. Sure. Um, because you're not measuring and being as stringent, but also enjoyment of time, right? Mm-hmm. Because you're not bound by hitting these targets. It's more about like, let's just focus on enjoyment. So I think, um, yeah, definitely for me, I've innately had that experience and feeling growing up. Um, but also knowing that <laughs> I have to kind of blend these two worlds. Yeah. And none of all the people that I know, I would say you are one of the better in the top tier, we'll say, of being present because you, as opposed to thinking about other things. Cause you, you just, you are there where you are. Like I remember in university being upset with you for being late for something. And like, this is like literally 14 years ago or whatever. And then you, you <laughs> kind of being like, you just like, you brushed it off. And like, that I like, I like really probed. Cause I was like, this is a moral failure, Joel. Like I was like trying to be the good Christian brother. And then you're like, well, I was with my dad and we were like fixing his car. And like, cause it had some like repairs that were needed. And I'm like, oh, like that seems like a really good thing to do, you know? And like, you were there present with your dad and, you know, you have a good relationship with him. You care about, and like, I think it's, it, yeah. So anyways, it's, that's helpful. Let's keep listening. Okay. It's been argued that part of what's interesting about this is in Western countries, we, as we've been more and more shaped by clock time, that's also been connected with money. All right, so let me pause. Let's do a little Bible quiz. All oh, right. yeah, Bible quiz. This is good. Everyone should do this. We do this drill. Sword drill. Get it. Get ready. All Pull right. your Bible. Get your Bible ready. Swords up. Hint. Think Proverbs. Can you name the chapter, just a chapter, where you read this in the Bible? Time is money. It's not in there not in there you know who said that ben franklin but where i'm from it might as well be in the bible we have baptized it a hundred percent and it may not be always necessarily about finances but actually we really have so framed time in terms of economic value listen to our language Don't waste your time. Save your time. Spend your time well. Use it. You can see what's going on there. 
And in this setting, speed and production are rewarded, while being slow or inefficient are penalized. This would be another talk, and we don't have to spend a lot of time on imagination here, but just think about how deeply that affects and creates problems for anyone with disabilities, including in the church. Acclaimed British sociologist of time, you probably, I didn't even know when I started researching, they're sociologists of time. It's kind of cool. Anyways, Barbara Adams is this British sociologist of time, one of the leaders, and I won't take you through everything she says, but as she talks about how time and money and speed come together, I'll just give you this one thing. From this view of time, she says, now we have, quote, the compression and intensification of processes seems inevitable. Don't hear that, feel that. Do you feel in your life compression and intensification of processes. You need to speed read, right? You need, you need a better app for your phone in order to be better organized on your calendar, the to-do app. You need the diet that's faster. You and I need and it all, and, and I'll just tell you right now, part of where I'm going, we don't have time to totally unpack this now, but the intensification that we feel and where we've confused creaturely limits, just being a creature, which means you can't be everywhere, you can't do everything, you can't know everything, which by the way, is how God made us. God made us with limits. Limits are not part of the fall. Limits are part of the goodness of being a human creature. We've taken that and we've become confused about that. And it's hurting us in some pretty deep ways. And so we feel this intensification and we've confused our limits with sin. And so now in the Western world, oh, and what I was going to say there is the problem is as everyone feels this, the answer in the church is not fundamentally different than the answer in the world. In the world, you know how you answer this? Better time management. And you know how you answer it in the church? Better time management. And what if it's not a time management problem? What if it's a theological and pastoral problem? What if we fundamentally misunderstood God and ourselves and what it means to be a creature? So one of the things that you said earlier is like, finding joy in the midst of what you're doing. And like joy is like, it's hard to make joy efficient. Like Andy Crouch has recently been writing about this and he has this like, you know, equation. It's like, we need to impact is measured by whatever over time. And that's how impact is measured. When really for Christianity, like we don't measure things with time as the common denominator. We measure it. Like he uses relationship, he thinks about love, he thinks about all these other things, you think about joy, like it's just Christianity doesn't jive well with this intensification of processes and this focus on efficiency with time being the common denominator. Um, and I'm like reading Jacques Lul right now, and he gets to a point in the book where he's like, people feel this, people feel this intensification of of efficiency 
this need to be more productive, to squeeze more out of their day, to just do more, more, more. And they know that something's fundamentally off about this, but they don't actually do anything about it because it's too ingrained. It's it's just the the tyranny of time. It It's just too hard to stop. It's why I tried to correct you in university. It's just, of course, I need to correct you. Like, and so what about cultural differences? Don't you respect my time? Like we see it as this exchange, right? Yeah. And I think, so it's interesting in the first portion, I, I, to this day, don't think of time as, as strict and being like, okay, it has to be exactly like seven o'clock. So I had to be there like two minutes earlier. I'm still like, okay, Seven, seven to one, seven to two. It's, you know, I'm very, I'm, I'm like, it's all on the bridge. Before I used to be like seven ten, seven twenty. So I've, I've changed a lot. Obviously, <laughs> I married you're, you're someone. You're much better now. <laughs> I married someone from a different culture that had a lot to do with it. Um, but the tyranny of time, I really do feel its effect on the intensification and pressure on that side, especially in technology with what's going on with like, AI and even like just last week they were talking about um, the potential discovery of a room temperature superconductor LK99 and everyone like looking at that and what that could change. There's this like pressure to be like, oh my gosh, I need to stay on top of this. I need to be up to date. I need to be like mm-hmm. pulling this and how can I like expand my time so that I can, you know, be in this conversation and kind of contribute to the cutting edge. So I well, definitely wild. feel that. Like I was watching the keynote of your Splunk product, which we'll talk about later, but you had Microsoft, like some head of something at Microsoft come and do a keynote portion. Cause you're doing this big partnership with Microsoft, yada, yada, yada. And he's like, giving like the interviewers like and what advice there's like so many tech people here there's thousands of people listening like what advice would you give uh about ai and he's like well if you're not if you're not implementing ai right now in your product you're already years behind or like he like he Mm. made this audacious statement and i i'm like i'm obviously not in the tech world as much as i used to be but it's just like man this this pressure like you said like it's of course it's ingrained you you absolutely need to be learning about AI right now, Joel. How dare you be reflecting on the history of time? Yeah, and and look, there are some there are some realities to it. Like if you look at countries like Japan, yeah. Germany, Britain, obviously North America, um, these are countries that have taken a more strict piece of time, like Toyota with the production system and balancing the line to the second and everything like that, and. You know, a lot of that has actually resulted in productivity gains. So it's not that it's untrue, but I guess the intersection point of even if it's a reality doesn't make it right. Yeah, yeah. Does it make it good? You know, should God have really created the world in one day? Why did he take his time? Right? Like, like... It's kind of like if you have the power, if you have the ability, the opportunity, why prolong it? Um, And yeah, I think there are realities. Like, it's funny you went through realities in that way. I was thinking realities in the context of like, 
you know, dual income homes, taking care of kids. Like it's, it's hard. Like we were together the other day. We finally got together because our kids weren't sick. So we were like together in person. And it's just like, it's hard to do this. It's hard to keep up with friends when, you know, even if, even though it's only an hour and a half of us apart, it's, it's harder to do that and get our families together. And it's, yeah, you just feel the pressure. You feel the pressure. So we'll listen to a little bit more. We won't listen to a whole, the whole, because it's about a 45 minute talk that he gives, but he's going to, he's going to move into at this point, a little bit more of the anxiety that this brings up in us. So now we live with the consequences of this intensification where clock time linked with money and expected increased production has this paradox where we can feel it. Think about it. It's so cool. For the longest time, we thought it'd be really cool to make machines like humans. That'd be awesome. And the paradox is, and you feel it in your soul right now, in your gut, the paradox is now we are trying to make humans like machines. Here's the thing. Machines just occasionally need to be charged up and serviced. But humans, we need sleep but also, and nutrients, but not just that. We need laughter and love and rest. We're inefficient. Does that mean we're morally inferior to machines? And I put it that way, and you're like, no, no, wait. But what do you think God expects from you for a day? For, for you to do in a week, for you to do in a lifetime. Is the model for us Christ? Or is this something else? And he doesn't go into at this point that model of Christ, but it is just an overwhelming picture of godliness to have someone only do three years of ministry or to spend mm -hmm. a majority of his life working an unremarkable job, like working as a mason or carpenter, whatever. There wasn't that many trees back then. So maybe it was like, oh man, maybe it was more stonework. Maybe we should change the picture of a wooden carpenter Jesus. But um, <laughs> but like, you know, Jesus just like, he worked a job unremarkable in the sense that nobody made marks about it. And yeah, and then he did his ministry and it was very slow. Like it's wild. When we think about effective ministry today, we think about growth, 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 right? But what if it's only 12 listeners, you know, followers, that's it. Because um, that's what I think, that's what motivates me with this podcast, is that there, there are definitely 12 listeners. We know there's more than that at this point. But like, I know of 12 people, right, that listen to this podcast. And I care about them. So I can like, I won't mm. list their names right now. But when I think about that guy who... You know, I only recently met and he's like trying to get a job, graduating the University of Waterloo. You could see the smile on his face when he said he was in engineering, like the pride that he takes. Because you always get asked, what program are you in? And some people, they're like, oh, I'm in recreation and leisure. You know, they don't say it with pride. They're, oh, I'm in, I'm in political science. Um, oh, you know, I'm in, I'm in, you know, this, this uh, accounting program, you know. Oh, but it's, oh, is it that accounting program? No, it's not that one. You know? But he was like, mm. I'm an engineer. <laughs> like, and he's going to graduate, but he's looking for a job and he feels the pressure and he's going to get caught up. And I remember thinking when you're on 
early on in my career that I need to like work more hours, like basically work evenings so that I like build up a respect in the workplace. Yeah, I might have to work 10 hours in my eight hour day or seven hour work day. Anyways, it's just, I think this is just a profound like thing to think on and the sense of pressure, the sense of productivity, the sense of efficiency, the sense of failure that inevitably comes with it. Um, so I don't, I don't know how you, cause Joel, you seem to just like, like you have been successful. You have been able to do things, but you constantly have goals that you don't achieve. So because you just have really high ambitious goals. So how do you process this stuff? Yeah, I think, I mean, it's really good to dwell on. I think there's maybe like two or three kind of observations. One, very similar to you, you know, growing up, it's like, okay, I have to make the use of this time because it's going to have compounding effects later in my career, you know, which is true, but it's like, you know, we learn the whole concept of compound interest. So you're like, okay, like anything I do when you're younger is going to really like have an effect when you get older. And then I got to a point where I was like, no, I, I wasn't a Forbes 30 into 30 person. <laughs> and all that. I was like, yeah. okay, I kind of like missed that trajectory. And then I would say probably in the last few years, um, I hit a little bit more of a growth curve and it was realizing that things can happen for people at different times. Like, you know, there's a whole JK Rowling story about how she, I'm going to, pick a date and probably be wrong, but she was like 50 or something like that before her life completely changed in uh, becoming a well-renowned author. So I think looking back for me, the exponential growth I've had in, let's say the past two years completely dwarfed what happened in the last, I don't know, 10, let's say. Hmm. Um, and that's something important to to think about that helps me think better about time where for a long portion of my life, I was like, Oh, there's all this pressure. And then realizing that like, Hey, we actually don't know what God has in store. Um, and you know, it's interesting. You mentioned like the Jesus starting his ministry at 30 and like people saying, Oh, you've like entered your Jesus year or like pastor <laughs> Jesus year yeah. and all these like, euphemisms but it's like yeah like in three years he had this massive impact and could be from 30 to 33 or it could be from like 40 to 43 for any one of us and having that sort of perspective i think is much more healthier than being like okay well i'm like withering away and wasting my years and it's like obviously you don't want to slip too much to the other side either um and kind of having no ambition. But I think, yeah, at least for me, that was healthy to kind of put into context. Mm -hmm. um, and then yeah, there's, think... you know, the other, sorry, the second thought I would have is like, when I think we were like middle of school, and there was like the um, financial, the great financial crisis, like 2008, 2009, people mm -hmm. who graduated in that time had a, a much harder time getting jobs. And when you look at their in aggregate, their career, their growth trajectories have been slower. Um, there's this whole concept in Japan called the lost decade because people who graduated 
didn't convert to getting a first time job. And the culture over there is they always go for fresh grads. So the people who missed that jump kind of got stuck in limbo for like eight, 10 years of their life. So there's just like whole generation that kind of missed the wave. Um, so yeah, I think like, that's also interesting to think about that. Like there is a, there's a reality, like I mentioned earlier. Um, but also to take that as a grain of salt in the context of like the bigger picture. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Going back to your, your first point, it seems like a, a couple things are going on and within it, it's, it's definitely having a perspective of God is in control. God's going to time my life. Man makes plans, but God determines his ways as the proverb goes. And there's countless proverbs of that nature and stories of scripture in that regard. Like I'm sure Joseph was, when he was sitting in jail was like, man, gotta be productive, but I don't know what I'm going to do. Like, <laughs> what is, when's my time, God? And I think sometimes some of us have too many aspirations for ourselves that don't actually make sense within God's timing. Um, and we need to see everything as, as like out of gratitude and that sort of thing. But also the in there is like a cultivation of patience for when you will be able to serve. And that is more important than the good itself that you might deliver to someone else. Like when we think about fruitful ministry, like we often think about these outcomes outside of our own character formation. But what is actually the fruit of the spirit? What are the actual, what is actual fruitfulness? If a church is fruitful, but they don't have patience, joy, love, self-control, like if they don't have those virtues, then they're not actually a like, I don't care what numbers they're hitting in what period of time. Oh, they're the fastest growing church. It's like, why do we care about that statistic? You know, we it's far harder, but yet far more important to measure the godliness and mm. that fruit. And, and I'm okay with talking about fruit in terms of outcomes. I think it's fair. There's biblical illustrations there too. But I I think there's the ingrained attention to cultivating who we are and and that matters more than the notoriety um i'd highly recommend a book i i don't know why it took me so long to read it but um the freedom of self-forgetfulness by tim keller and it's short it's like basically one of his sermons turned into a little mini booklet and it's it's just wild how helpful it is and, and really what it comes back to and, and we'll kind of just end the podcast um on this note is is where is the gospel in all of this when we set expectations for ourselves as all people do you know romans chapter 2 even those who don't have the jewish scriptures they still create a law for themselves in their heart and that law either excuses or accuses them it, it's it's we all have this self-judgment we can't help it and we either set goals that are like real goals that we all set and then we fail to meet some and then we have to wrestle with that who's going to forgive me who's going to where am i going to find my sense of adequacy or we set really low standards because i know some people who do this it's like yeah i don't i always want to feel like i'm successful so i just set really low standards and then it's like well then and tim keller points this out like well, don't you struggle with knowing that you set really low standards? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, like that that can become, and it almost was what you were saying. And like, you 
just on and on. It's like, oh, I just don't want to do too much. Maybe my time will come later. There's there's this dangerous, like, well, maybe, like, I'll just set low goals for myself over and over and over. I don't care. And then you're like, oh, I'm just always setting low goals for myself. Um, so anyways, it's it's this question of how are we given a status, given recognition, given some sense of worth. And it it has to come from something outside of ourselves. We can't create it, muster it up inside of ourselves because then it's going to wander when we're having a bad day. It needs to come from Jesus Christ. It needs to come from this external act of forgiveness and gift righteousness or imputation so that his ministry, his success, his fruitfulness is given to us. And then we can rest in that. Um, and then it, and then it totally changes our disposition towards work. Um, and I know we've kind of talked about that on the podcast before, but there's going to be people who haven't listened in on every episode. And it's just the thing that I care most about in life is the gospel. And it's fundamentally what reoriented me towards ministry is that gospel. So yeah, anyways, I mean, I think what's also interesting, you know, tying that love in the podcast to, you know, the enjoyment of technology is that technology is probably one of like the fastest moving domains, you know, in, in the concept of time, like this, the acceleration of change in the spaces, you know, breathtaking. Um, and you, if you're feeling that, you know, pressure intensification in other disciplines, you're definitely going to feel it in technology where it's like, oh, so-and-so large language model came out. Like, how do we build on that? And it's like, oh, yeah. so-and-so researcher came out with this. It's like, oh, we have to be the first to, like, you know, make use of it and gain a competitive edge. And, like, everything is so, even so much more accelerated because typically, you know, for at least physical sciences, some of these processes take time. But with software development, you know, you've, you're kind of launching off of... Uh, you know, an aircraft aircraft carrier, right? You're already out in deployment of of the sea. You don't have to fly all the way from uh, a land base. So, kind of the acceleration in speed is even more so in software. So, I think it's very healthy to take that all into context for anyone who's building technology, for people who are just experiencing this speed of technology, to really take a step back and and realize that technology still falls under you know God's domain right mm -hmm. which means that we do have to apply this biblical perspective of time and appreciation for god's time and his sovereignty and all of that and i think that's very important for people who are building things and feeling um feeling their runway coming to an end if they're burning cash right there's like the added pressure there of like we have to turn this company around in time right mm -hmm. um so while it is real, there's also someone else who is very real that we need to look to and trust. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well said. Well, we will we will leave it here. I mean, we made it 22 minutes into Kelly Capek's talk, and we talked for maybe about the same time on top of that. I don't know what the timer's at. But uh, yeah, so I'll... I'll link to it in the show notes and uh i do encourage you to listen through to the rest of it and uh joel you have to listen to the rest of it whether or not we record it or not um because <laughs> it it's uh it gets 
gets to some interesting comments near the end about anxiety and and getting into um, how a theology of God and God being present, you know, God is both timeless and present. So you have this nearness of God and how does that affect how we think about our presence? Anyways, it's good. So uh, yeah, this has been What Would Jesus Tech? We are reflecting together on how to use tech as Jesus would if he lived today. And maybe he would have had a fundamental different posture. Maybe he would have got fired as a carpenter or like, I don't don't know. It's just wild (laughs) to just think of, would he be that different? Would it be outrageous? I think he would have, you know, fit in and blah, blah, blah. But um, yeah, it's just, it's just wild to, to like really think about if our posture towards getting things done and productivity is truly what is godly. And there's overlap there for sure. Um, but yeah, we need to we need to use tech. We need to find rest. We need to glorify God, and uh, we hope to encourage you in doing that. Take care. See ya.